Once in a while, we get a game-changing archaeological find that changes the way we think about the scriptures and about the reliability of Old and New Testament narrative accounts. They, they only occur once in a generation, but when they do, they're usually very, very significant. And one of those has just recently been published, discovered back initially in 2019. Additional work was done on it in 2021. Uh, and one of, the, one of the leading archaeologists on this project, uh, Scott Stripling, is with us. He was one of, the, one of the key people on the team who excavated this site and then did a lot of the follow-up work on it. Scott is provost and director of the Archaeology Institute at the Bible Seminary in Katy, Texas, and is director of excavations for the Associates for Biblical Research. Uh, he has directed excavations in other places in, in the Middle East, uh, and is currently president of the Near East Archaeological Society. So when our, when our listeners hear about archaeology, uh, let, me, let me make sure that they don't tune us out right away. We're not going to get into the weeds in this. We're going to stick to the big picture. But Scott, really welcome. Thanks so much for being with us. And let's take basic questions first, sort of the who, what, where, when, and why questions. So what was found that is such a game-changing find? First of all, hey Scott, thanks for having me on the the podcast today. Um, we found a small lead folded tablet, which was two by two centimeters. Um, if it were unfolded, it would be about four by two centimeters. This is the size and the style of what we normally refer to as a defixio or a curse tablet. What made this one unique and sort of shocking was that it came from an altar on Manival, and Joshua 8.30 says that Joshua built an altar on Manival, and this tablet came from that altar, which was, according to the biblical text, the mountain of the curse, and we have what's called a curse tablet with an inscription on it. Okay, so tell it, I mean, clarify for our listeners the context, both in Deuteronomy and in Joshua, uh, the significance of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, where the, the, mm -hmm. the Mosaic Covenant was renewed. Well, right. It's it's actually probably the Abrahamic covenant that they're renewing because it's right there at uh, Shechem. Uh, the next hill over is Elam More, and this is where the Abrahamic covenant is cut. So it's my view that when Moses in Deuteronomy 11 and in Deuteronomy 27 instructs the Israelites, once you have gained a foothold in the land, go to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ival, which is ancient Shechem, and renew covenant there. And he tells them exactly how to do it. Put six of the tribes on Mount Gerizim to pronounce blessings and six on Mount uh, Ival to pronounce curses. And then notably, Joshua 8.30 says that Joshua built an altar on Mount Ival unto the Lord. Okay, and that altar was also, parts of that altar were, was also found on Mount Ebal, correct? Well, that's it. Adam Zertal, in his survey of the Manasseh Hill Country in 1980, discovered this large structure that had been intentionally covered, did not know what it was, once they remove the mantle of stones, Zertal, who was not a believer, he was agnostic, um, had not even read the Joshua account. When he, when he, somebody showed it to him, he was in utter shock, and he, from that day on, became a believer in the historicity of the text. Okay, so who? Um, so this was originally discovered. The altar was originally discovered a couple of decades ago. When the the finding that you're talking about, the tablet. Uh, who 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 found that? Which team found that? And when was that found? 
Yeah, so just to clarify the timeline, Zertal founded in 1980, excavated from 82 to 89. Um, unfortunately, he died seven years ago without doing a final publication. I led a team in December of 2019 for an expedition back to Mount Ival, and what we did is we took his dump pile, his discarded remains from the excavation, and using a new technology that we have perfected known as wet sifting, we relocated uh, about 30% of that dump pile and we wet sifted it. And it was in that wet sifting process, among many things that we found, the, the most important was this defix seal. So this was material that was probably going to be thrown out? It had already been thrown out oh. back in the 1980s. And it's just all, all archaeological sites have dump piles. <laughs> What's left behind by the archaeologist? The problem is that when, when we archaeologists dry sift the material, there's still most of the small finds cannot be seen with the naked eye. A scarab that is covered in dirt looks like a rock. And we knew this from tests that we had done that we had been throwing away about 75% of the evidence in the past. Wow. And it was for that reason that I was very interested in examining Zertal's dump pile, hoping we would get something that would give us more insight, since he had never done a final publication, insight into that important structure. Okay, so t tell us a little bit more. Why does this finding matter so much? Well, <laughs> it matters on a lot of different levels. I mean, number one, the the dating of the Exodus and the conquest. Uh, we have uh, two different camps, basically, within evangelicalism, a, a 15th century or around 1400 BC early date camp, and then a 13th century camp. I'm an advocate of the early date. I wrote uh, for Zondervan last year a chapter in their new book on five views on the Exodus, stating all the reasons why. Um, this weighs in on that because this text dates to the late Bronze II period, or that LB1B, LB2A horizon, which is around 1400 BC. It's what I call a proto-alphabetic script when Egyptian hieroglyphs are just morphing into phonetic symbols. And so that's occurring at the time that the Bible places Joshua on Menival. We have a text that, that our epigraphers, our paleographers, have also dated to that time. So theologically, historically, archaeologically, and then theologically, uh, there are huge ramifications that we could talk about. Okay, let's do that here. You, I mean, this essentially reinforces the biblical date of the conquest That's right. of the Promised Land. It also reinforces... The, the, the early, what I think is the biblically consistent date of the Exodus, mm -hmm. uh, a few years before that. Uh, and so what does this do to a good bit of critical scholarship <laughs> in the Old Testament that, that dated the Exodus and the conquest much, much later? Yeah, it's very problematic for that viewpoint. Um, here we have an altar uh, that from the pottery and now from this inscription— we can date to that early date. Um, so that is very consistent with what we would expect from an early date or a biblical uh, date view. So for those who are arguing, and really they started doing this 90 years ago or whatever during the time of Albright, to because they did not think they were finding archaeological evidence from the 15th century that supported the biblical date. So I guess they thought they would help God <laughs> uh. and come up with some fancy 
what they call Distanzangabe and some fancy German math equation to say that 480 years did not mean 480 years and whatever. What well, turns out, you know, there was only 1% of the land of the Bible had been excavated at that time, and that was not necessary. God did not need help. Here, um, here. And as we have continued to excavate, we've now unearthed tremendous evidence that supports the early date. This reinforces that. Yeah, a, a, a big part of the finding was the inscription with the name of God in it. Yes. And that the date of that inscription was roughly 1400 BC, right around the time right. of the right around the time of the conquest. Um, what's the what's the significance of finding uh, the 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 Hebrew name of God in that well, particular inscription? You know, your, your students at Biola are fortunate. You, you believe in the Bible, and you're you're treating it as a reliable historical document. Students at many seminaries uh, and universities are not that fortunate. And I know because I speak at these universities, and this yeah. is exactly what I encountered. They've been fed the documentary hypothesis, you know, Wellhausen's theory and its various versions no, and derivations. Li- listeners, we'll talk about that in just a second. Okay. Go, go ahead. Well, the bottom line is they would argue that the biblical text was not redacted, to use their term, until a thousand years or so later. Um, so how could it be reliable? We have no eyewitnesses. And they would say that there was no alphabet with which Moses and Joshua could have written. We now have proof of literacy at that time and of an alphabetic script, what we would call a proto-alphabetic script that predates Paleo-Hebrew. So, so maybe Moses was a lot more literate than people give him, critical scholars <laughs> give, him, give him credit for. Well, that's uh, right. I mean, as as a Christian, for your listeners who are Christians, they might want to just start with what Jesus himself said, that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Right. That's a good place to start. <laughs> but for but, critical scholars, they need more than that. And for those who are persuadable, I think we've given them more. Yeah. Now, for our listeners, the, the, there's, there's a whole school of critical scholarship that has arisen in the last hundred plus years that has pretty, I'd say, pretty consistently worked to undermine uh, tra- traditional uh, views of the reliability of, of the Old Testament narrative. Uh, and I think, what, it, what has been the trend? You said 90 years ago, only, only a very small percentage of the, the land of Israel had been excavated. What's the trend been as more and more of the land has been excavated and more of these finds have been discovered? Well, it's the best of times and the worst of times. I mean, we have fewer um, archaeologists who believe in a historical text, unfortunately. But the reason for this is because of the emergence of the Israeli scholars themselves. I mean, they were trained by Albright and Jernist Ride and some of the early pioneers. And, you know, they are, of course, tremendous archaeologists in their own right today, but they presuppositionally do not take the Bible as a reliable historical source on the same level that they would take the Amarna letters from Egypt or the Ugaritic literature. And and we study those other things too, Scott, because um, sometimes they're very, very helpful. But we don't consider the Bible guilty until proven innocent. So I would say we do have a significant number of, an emerging number of archaeologists who do believe you have a reliable historical text in the Bible, but an overwhelming majority do not hold that view. So we are engaged in an arena of ideas, and I think our ideas are good ideas, and they happen to, to synchronize with the Bible. 
Now, you mentioned a minute ago what's called the documentary hypothesis that has, I think, long been assumed to be the authoritative account of how the first five books of the Bible came to be authored, not right. by Moses, but by a, through a variety of sources and editors that w- sort of worked worked their editing together into you know a bare bones you know set of historical facts that a thousand years later gave us the final draft of the first five books of the Old Testament. Is that a fair representation of that? Yeah, very, very fair. Uh-huh. And sort of in a nutshell, we talk about, or they talk about a JEDP kind of an idea where you have different sources, a Jehovah's source, an Elohim source, and so forth. Um, they would say that those sources were hundreds of years apart. The problem now for them is that in this inscription, we have El right next to Yahweh. Right next to it, juxtaposed. So the two did exist at the same time. They are not hundreds of years apart, as Wellhausen theorized. And those, yeah, just for our, so our, make sure our listeners get get the point here. There's there one document or one source for the Pentateuch is presumed to predominantly use the name El or Elohim for God. The other one is the the Yahwist source is presumed to use the name Yahweh. Uh, and those have been those two. Sources are separated by hundreds of years, but this inscription is has both name both those names of God, which are supposed to be separated by hundreds of years, in the same sentence, there you in go. the same inscription. Did I get that right? You nailed it, brother. And so now you can see, because theologically we have a liberal and conservative divide, just like in everything else, and you can see now why this is a problem for those who are taking a more liberal, less literal uh, approach to the Bible— you have evidence now that suggests that it is historically reliable and that there were eyewitnesses. So what, what do you think will be the impact on the, the world of critical scholarship, the world of sort of skeptical archaeologists, uh, when this finding is, you know, is, is fully published and the results are widely disseminated? I'll try to give it to you in a nutshell. Uh, I, I see the world this way. We have about one-third of either scholars or laymen, just interested public, that is predisposed toward belief, and about one-third that has a proclivity towards skepticism or unbelief, and about one-third in the middle that are persuadable, sort of fair-minded, uh, is like Adam Zertal, for example. He was an agnostic. He did not even read the Bible, didn't believe the Bible, but evidence persuaded him to move to the right. So I think we have a significant number of people who will be impacted by evidence like this. I'm not expecting these people, you know, in the, the third on the left, that they're going to, to jump ship and, and come aboard, although they'd certainly be welcome to. Um, I think for generations, this is going to reverberate, uh, just like the documentary hypothesis did. I think this will continue to reverberate. So would, would it be accurate to say that a finding like this essentially dismantles that, that documentary hypothesis for how the first five books of Moses were written? In my view, it does. And there are other problems with that, uh, with that uh, theory, but I, I, my view is yes, it does. So what, um, among those in the, that persuadable middle, um, what do, you, what do you anticipate seeing with this group as a result? And, they, and these, our listeners should know these, these findings have not been published for all that long. Uh, so they were, I mean, they, from my understanding, they were published, you know, within the last 12 months. 
Uh, right. Well, we released this about six months ago. Um, the peer-reviewed academic publication is in peer review right now. Eleven months, eleven weeks ago, on August the twenty-sixth, is when I, when it entered into peer review. So we are still waiting for the academic uh, publication to come out. Uh, okay. Well, maybe then, you know, maybe other I'll... scholars, in fairness to them, they will have the data, the scans, and you know they could begin to then make assessments. Well, maybe I'll I'll change my question then based on that. Uh, okay. What what do you what do you anticipate will be the reaction of those who are, you know, sort of hardened atheists, agnostics, and you know, committed skeptics to biblical reliability? <laughs> well, when Adam Zertal announced that he had found an altar on Mount Eval, look at what the reaction was at that point. Larry Stager from Harvard famously said, "If Zertal has found an altar on Mount Eval." We archaeologists and scholars all need to go back to kindergarten. <laughs> really? Guess huh. what? The majority of, I mean, the, the pendulum has swung, and mainstream archaeology today accepts that as an altar. So that initial reaction had to work its way through, you know, until it's kind of in the main thing. Same thing with the James Ossuary. You know, there's this huge skepticism and reaction against, but now the majority of scholars accept that as an authentic uh, inscription. So you're going to get a variety of reaction. I mean, some are going to say, hallelujah, <laughs> this is great. Mm -hmm. We know we've been getting beat up with this JEDB stuff, and, you know, we knew it wasn't right. Now we've got some proof. And then you're going to have some in the middle that are going to kind of be cautious. And then you'll have some on the left that are going to stake out a skeptical turf, I'm sure. So some, I suspect some will not be willing to give up their, the worldview that's defined their life's work. I, uh, yes. With, without, at least, at least not without a fight. That's right. Um, <laughs> but those in the persuadable middle, it sounds like this is pretty compelling evidence that uh, some, you know, some widespread skeptical views of historical reliability of Old Testament narrative needs to be changed. Yes, sir. And, you know, then it sort of bleeds over into theology as well. Like, if we do have a reliable biblical text, then what are the ramifications of that? Now, does, does that mean if the Bible is a reliable historical document, then there is a God of the Bible and that that God holds a moral claim on my life? You know, so these are big ramifications. Yeah, I think, I think some archaeologists would probably say, well, now you're meddling in my life. And, 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 <laughs> you know, we're... I've never—I'm I'm a believer, and clearly an, I'm an evangelical Christian. I've never tried to hide that, um, and I see no need to bifurcate my my faith any more than they would see a need to bifurcate their agnosticism from their scientific archaeology. Um, I'm very comfortable dialoguing about that, so bring it on. So let me, Yeah, let me go back a little bit. Um, to when the, the teams that excavated this site, um, what you described some some pretty significant challenges that they faced, uh, because where where exactly is Mount or is Mount Ebal uh, mm. in relationship to present day Israel? In 1993, the Oslo Accords carved up the so-called West Bank, which is ancient Judea Samaria, into areas A, B, and C. A, went under complete Palestinian control. That's sites like Jericho, for example. C, went under complete Israeli control. And B, went under a, a blended jurisdiction with Israeli military control, but Palestinian civil control. Mount Ival lies within B. So it is the disputed territory within the disputed territory. 
And were there was there a struggle to get in and out of that site? Were there difficulties, uh, you know, with the authorities in excavating that? Yeah, it's very compli- complicated. We live in the West in a pretty black and white world, but the Middle East is not that way. And it's not even clear who's in charge in Area B. And so you can get permission from one side. That may not make the other side happy. And then since it's pre-1993, is it grandfathered in? Do the Oslo Accords not apply? So you've got multiple levels of, <laughs> of gray that you, with which you're dealing. Um, we did obtain military permission and permission of the local uh, council um, to remove the dump piles that we removed. We did not excavate, all, we, but we did examine the pre-1993 material in the dumps. This is still, I, I hope our listeners appreciate how, it, how serendipitous this is, that a, you know, a finding of this significance that dismantles a good bit of critical scholarship about the authorship and dating of the Pentateuch that uh, basically it really helps, I think, cement an early date for the Exodus and the conquest was found in basically a trash pile. That's right. Uh, and the, the, there's, there's just something, you know, providentially serendipitous about this that, uh, that I, hope is, I hope is not lost on our listeners, how, how significant that is. That, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think this was, a, you know, anything but, uh, you know, highly providential that you all came across this stuff. Mm. Well, I, I had the same sense, Scott. I, you know, when I was there on Madival and the altar, there's a round, small round altar underneath a larger rectangular altar. It's the small altar on the bottom that is actually Joshua's altar. The larger altar was later built in the period of the judges. But not to digress, but I did have a sense of providence when I was there. And I'm not sure how this works with people's theology, but I did sense that God was saying to me, you know, that there is something very significant that's going to come out of this and that you're going to have an opportunity to let the world know about it. I think that's quite consistent with my view of the Holy Spirit. So, yeah. so one one other question for you. What what would you say are some of the other, you know, once in a generation archaeological finds that have reinforced the reliability mm. of Old Testament history? Okay, well, I'll give you three real right quickly. Um in 1993 we got the House of David inscription and that was important because Skepticists, minimalists had beaten us over the head with the fact that David didn't exist because we don't have references to David outside the Bible. And so once we got references to David outside the, that first one from Tel Dan, and then we have several others since then as well, um, nobody ever apologizes, you understand. They just move <laughs> on to the next, next one. But that was pretty big. Um, the Pontius Pilate inscription in 1961 was pretty big because, again, secularists were arguing that the title prefect given in the New Testament was uh, an anachronism because um, uh, Tacitus in the second century had used the title um, procurator for Pilate. Mm -hmm. And so the New Testament writers got it wrong. Well, with the the inscription from Caesarea, there it has his name and his title as prefect. So those things come along in their guideposts. But the really, really big one prior to this, I would say, was the Dead Sea Scrolls in 47 and 48. And just remind our listeners, again, who aren't familiar with that, what's the significance of that? 
Well, you had, you got biblical texts dating as early as the third century BC when we were dealing with manuscripts. Our oldest manuscripts in 1947, you know, are primarily a thousand years old, and so you are going back more than a thousand years and recovering all the multiple copies of manuscripts, uh, and, and to see that you have a consistent, stable biblical text that has been transmitted to us in a stable manner was phenomenal. Yeah, I think this, yeah, the uh, I'd encourage our listeners to look at the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran cave finds, uh, and I think the way they speak to how, how clearly and how reliably the text was copied over, over that thousand-year period is, is remarkable. Yeah. Um, and I think it reinforces that the, the biblical text that we have today is, is basically the same as the one that was original. Although we don't treat it the same as the original, which we don't have any of those any longer, but uh, any the differences, the the the, the deviations have, have almost all been found to be very minor, sure. and don't and don't affect any particular uh, any particular doctrine or teaching that we would base our lives on. So, Scott, this has been this has been so helpful. Uh, I so appreciate you. Putting the cookies on the lower shelf for us uh, non non archaeologists down here, this has so been so enlightening. Hey, uh, I like that metaphor. I'm gonna I'm gonna borrow that. Uh, put the cookies yeah. on the lower shelf. I love it. And thank you for your all your good work as an archaeologist and uh, all the all the good work that's been done to uh, to just I think to reassure the believing community that. You know, maybe the Old Testament narrative was pretty accurate after all. You know, maybe 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 they got a lot of things right. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to share with you and your your audience. And uh, for folks who are interested in our dig, they can go to digshiloh.org to get more details. Very good, Scott. Thank you so much. This has been rich, rich conversation. This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically: Conversations on Faith and Culture. Uh, the Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our Master's in Christian Apologetics, now offered fully online. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Scott Stripling, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything. Thank you.